This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Um, Last week, we started a series on community, and uh, we are going to be looking at a number of different texts where this idea is found, this truth in the Scripture. And uh, last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2. And the point of that message, if you, if you weren't here, I might recommend going online and listening to that, or if you subscribe to the podcast, you have that. Uh, I might suggest going back and listening to that, because that's very foundational for the whole series, and I don't want to move away from what we talked about last week, which is the reality that God gives people new life. God gives new life, and he gives us new life so that we may live out our new life in his new community. So what we saw in Acts chapter 2 was this historic event of the Holy Spirit coming and him making people new, granting new life, to 3,000 people on a particular day, the day of Pentecost, those people being baptized, and then those folks thrust together in a community where they lived out their life together. They didn't leave that moment and live isolated, detached lives, but they lived their lives together with God's people. And, And they lived their lives devoted to certain things, devoted to the Scripture, devoted to fellowship together, devoted to breaking of bread, devoted meals together including communion, devoted to prayer. They were in awe at all that God was doing, the Scripture says. And um, they were giving, they were sharing what they had with those who had need in their community. And God was adding people to their community. So there was such a dynamic of God at work in their midst that it sort of won a hearing for the gospel so that people in the community could then explain the gospel to others who were believing in Jesus Christ and added to the community as well. So they were a learning community, sharing community, worshiping community, and an expanding community, growing as well. And all of this happened because of the work of the Holy Spirit. All of this happened because God granted new life and then built people together in this church in Jerusalem. So last week we talked about being a community of the Spirit, and everything else we talk about will relate to that because the gospel gives us, the message of the gospel gives us new life by the Spirit, and the Spirit causes us to live a kind of gospel centered life, living a life around the person and work of Jesus Christ in community. Last week, community of the Spirit. Today I want to talk about being a community of love. Now, that relates as well because the Bible tells us the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first fruit of the Spirit is love. If the Spirit is active, the presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is active in someone's life, they will love. And if the Holy Spirit is active in a community of believers, they will be characterized in a fundamental way by love. And so this is something that's kind of a burden that went in search of a text, which isn't always the best way to begin a message, I'll just be frank. But I think what I'm going to talk about today is totally true to the text. I'm not imposing my ideas on the text, but I wanted to find a text that had to do with love. So there's some standard texts. Uh, We could look at John 15, 
where Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. That would be a powerful text. We could look at 1 Corinthians 13, which is a, uh, a well-known text about love and what love looks like with one another. But I want to look at a very unusual text to talk about the idea of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and those even who don't know him as well. I want to look at a passage that illustrates the idea of loving the community and that the community is to be characterized by love. I want to look at a passage that is a prayer where this theme comes up. It's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, and it's Paul's example to the Thessalonians that I want to look at because the, the truth of love comes through in a powerful way here, I think. So 1 Thessalonians 3, let's begin in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reasons, brother, in, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. God, thank you for your indescribable love for us that's demonstrated in Jesus giving his life on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for your love, and we pray that we would be characterized as a people by love, that the Holy Spirit would increase our love, that the Holy Spirit would bear the fruit of the Spirit in our midst of love, make us a people that mirror you, and make us a people that experience what is being discussed here in this passage. I pray you would open our eyes to this text. I pray that you would speak to us clearly. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength and clarity uh, to be able to proclaim this passage in a truthful way to serve the folks gathered here today. Come, Spirit of God, we are desperate for your help to be hearers and doers of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's the background to this passage. And uh, like I said last week, background's really important to get what's going on here. But here's the background. Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, go to uh, Thessalonica. They preach the gospel for several weeks in a synagogue, and people start becoming believers and followers of Jesus Christ. They then begin to communicate the gospel to some pagans who the Scripture tells us they turned from their idols and they turned to Jesus Christ. So they go to this city, Thessalonica. They preach the gospel. People start becoming Christians, and they become a church, a gathering together. Then there's a riot. People aren't happy about this. There's a riot. Paul and his company here, the guys that are with him, are, in essence, uh, thrust out of town, kicked out of town. They leave. 
and, and they leave not knowing what happens to this sort of newer church plant. We don't know exactly how long they were there, but however long they were there, it wasn't as long as they wanted to be. And they aren't sure what really happens to this church, this church plant. They're desiring to know, but they don't know. Look back in chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says this, but since we were torn away from you, I just described that, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We got ripped away from you, but we wanted to see you. We wanted to be with you. Chapter 3, verse 1, we could, therefore, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So what Paul does to find out how this fledgling church is doing that has responded to the gospel is he sends his, his co-worker, uh, Timothy. Timothy goes to see them, help them, speak to them, teach them, and then comes back and brings a report to Paul. And when he brings the report to Paul, that's what we get in verse 6. We find out that he is responding to this report about the Thessalonians. So he's preached the gospel to them. They've become Christians. They've been joined together and become a church. He's torn away from them. He now finds out how they're doing. And as he does, listen to his language here, he reflects how he feels about this church. He reflects what his connection is to this church. He is a Christian and they as Christians in this church. We get a picture of what their lives are like and how they're intertwined in heart. Um, and this is what he says, verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from you, made his visit, he's returned, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress, all of our affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. So Timothy comes and he says, here's what the church in Thessalonica is like, Paul. And he tells Paul three things that Paul responds to. First of all, the good news, verse 6, of your faith and love. That's reported to him. He finds out they have faith. Paul has been wondering, what happened to this persecuted church? What happened to these people that received the gospel? How is their faith doing? How are they standing up against persecution? We got kicked out. We don't know what's happening to them. How are they doing? And Timothy comes back and says they still believe. They still have faith. They still love Jesus. They're still responding to the Savior. And Paul says this is good news. And he also says that they love. I heard about your faith and your love. So not only how are you doing with Jesus Christ, but how are you doing with one another? Has the persecution and the pressure and the heat of life fractured the congregation? No. I heard that you love. I heard that there's a love. There, there's, how is your unity, Paul's wondering? How's your community going? What's happening in the new church? Are our lives Joined together, is there division and hatred and strife? No, there's love. They have faith. They believe in Jesus. They have love. They love Christ. They love one another. They love those outside of the church. And so Paul says, that is good news. Secondly, he finds this out. Heard about your faith and love? And Timothy reported, verse 6, that you always remember us kindly. So the fact that Paul gets run out of town, they're not saying, hey, where'd he go? What happened? They're saying, we have fond memories of Paul. We're so grateful to him. He brought us the gospel. He taught us. He helped us. 
He, he discipled us. We love that man. We have fond memories. So Paul's encouraged. He doesn't start there. He doesn't start with, do you love me? He doesn't start there. He says, how, how is it with you in Christ? Your faith and your love, wonderful. But it doesn't hurt that you have good memories of our time together. He's pretty thankful about that. And thirdly, Timothy reports to him that they long to see us, his team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They long to see us, Paul says, just like we want to see you. Oh, this is good news. There's a relationship. We've been joined together. What happens to you matters to me. I want to see you, and you want to see me. We're torn apart under persecution. But he gets this good news. See, here we get a picture of Paul's heart for the church. I don't know how you picture Paul. I mean, he's a tough guy. If you read in 2 Corinthians what he experiences, shipwrecks, beatings with rods, you know, robbings, he's been stoned and left for dead. He's definitely a tough, a strong guy because he takes a beating regularly and just keeps on getting back up and preaching Christ. But there is a tenderness and an affection and a care and a love that Paul has for the people that God has joined him with. It's, I want to look at a few phrases here because I think it's an astounding love. He says this in verse 7, after he gets all this report, for this reason, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul's experiencing persecution. Paul's experiencing difficulty. Paul's experiencing opposition, but this is what he says. Life is very, very hard, but you know what? Just to know you're doing okay, that comforts my heart. I'm getting strength and comfort. I'm doing better because I know you're doing well. Life is very difficult, but just getting this report comforts my heart. He cares about the well-being of these Christians. They are his friends And the report comforts him. He has a loving disposition towards them. Now, the next phrase would almost seem unbelievable to me, honestly, if it wasn't in the Bible. I mean, we we might be tempted to correct someone that used this phrase about someone else. But this is what he says in verse 8. Got all this report. They're doing well in their faith. They're doing well in love for one another. Verse 8, for now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. Standing fast means to be uh, abiding in Christ, to be trusting in Christ, to be holding your ground, to be continuing to walk, to be persevering in difficulty. And this is what he says. It's almost like we're dead, but it is life to us. We are alive now that we hear that you are doing well. Now, he's not saying that in some kind of an idolatrous way. He's he's not saying in some situation that you are like a god to me and that I can't be content unless you're doing well. He's not saying that my circumstances have to be just as, as, as I desire or... I'm despairing of life. He's not just saying my well-being is tied to my circumstances. My well-being is tied to you. His well-being, he says elsewhere, he's learned how to be content in every situation, Philippians. His well-being is tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ in an ultimate sense. But having said that, there is in some way that we could say that Paul's life is bound up with these people. His life. 
I'm alive now that I know you're doing well. We are alive. We are experiencing life. Why? Because they are like family. They are joined in the spirit. They are one. Paul is saying in some mysterious way, your well-being is my well-being in some way, not in an ultimate way, because that's in Christ. But he's saying, I am deeply and profoundly affected by how you are doing in Christ. And not knowing was ripping my heart out. To not know what you're doing, to not know if you're withstanding persecution, to not know if you're continuing on and loving the Savior and one another. I, I, I just had to send Timothy and find out. And now that I hear, I'm alive. This is like life to us. I'm comforted in my distress because I know you're doing well, but even more, it's like life to me to know that you are doing well. Now, this isn't man-centered. This isn't like, unless a person acts a certain way, my life is over. It's not that way because he turns to God in the midst of this. He says, verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? So he doesn't stay there, but he immediately turns to God and says, how, this is what the NIV says. I read you the ESV. The NIV says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? How can we thank God enough for you? Uh, He is returning to God in worship and saying, God, I can't even thank you enough for the joy I feel because my brothers and sisters are prospering in Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters are bearing fruit. My brothers and sisters are believing and trusting in Christ in their difficulty. That brings me so much joy to you, God, for them that I can't even express it in words. That's what Paul says. So again, he's not linked in some kind of a weird relationship where he's like needy, needy, needy. I, you have to do this or I'm just, uh, you know, my love cup is empty. This is, it's not some kind of deal like that. He's looking to God and saying, God, I have great joy because of what you're doing in these people. And now that I hear that you're still at work in them and that they're following you, I'm alive. I'm alive. Now, I'm just trying to track line by line what's going on with Paul here, how he's responding to this church, because there's about to be a punchline in all this. But this is, let's just review what we've said. He finds the report that they are following Christ, that they love one another, and that they want to see him and be, be together. And that brings him comfort in the midst of life's distress. That is very much like life to him so that he turns to God and says, I'm so filled with joy for what you are doing in their lives that I don't even know how I can thank you enough. Verse 10, we pray most earnestly for you night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. In other words, what's lacking in their faith, they got started, but this is a fledgling church church that needs some help. So I I can't wait to see you again because I'm going to see that you're growing and that you're maintaining your faith in Christ, but I'm also going to be able to teach you some more stuff that we didn't get to about the faith. I want to complete you know, we, we sort of got like half of the New Believers course. I'd like to get the other half so you know more about how to relate to Jesus Christ. But he, there his heart is he's thankful for where they are, and he cannot wait to see them again and help them continue to grow. Paul's well-being is tied to their progress in Jesus Christ. His sense of life and joy 
is affected. Such is their unity that their weeping is his weeping. Their joy is his joy. Their progress in Jesus Christ is his joy in the Lord. Their growth in Jesus Christ is his comfort and affliction. Do you see that relationship? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever sensed that about anyone besides yourself? Has there ever been anyone outside of the category of me? I'm not saying me like I'm up here. I'm saying, saying that for you to say me. Outside of I, is there anyone outside of the first person that in your life you would say you relate to this? Someone else's spiritual well-being meant so much to you. Their relationship with Jesus Christ meant so much to you that you could speak in these terms. You had such a concern for them that when you found out they were doing well, you were comforted in your distress. That their fruitfulness, their walk with the Lord, their heart for Christ brought you such joy that you didn't even have words to express to God for it. Do you know that kind of care for another person? If you're a parent, you probably do. That's one place we could go to. If you're a parent, and if you're a non-parent, you can sense this as well. But if you're a parent, you probably can relate to some of what's going on. That is, sensing deeply how someone else is doing. I can relate to that. I I have to say in my life, I'm a pretty, by nature, I'm a pretty even-keel guy. I'm not subject... To super high highs and super low lows. I'm, I'm pretty middle of the road in my, my life. That's just my, my wiring, my makeup. But I would say off the even keel, the ups and downs, I would say some of the highest highs and lowest lows I've known have been as a parent and particularly as a parent of teenagers. Just what he's talking about here that when one of my children is responding well to the Lord, there is a tremendous joy, indescribable joy in that. And when one of them is not doing well, there is a deepening grief in that. So maybe you've experienced that with your, your children. Maybe you, Paul, Paul actually in this letter speaks as a parent a lot. He's not their parent, but he speaks that way. Look at verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Okay, we related gently to you like a nursing mother does to her infant. And when we came in, we just didn't hand you a track, and there's nothing wrong with handing out a track. But when we related with you, it's not that we just gave you the message of the gospel. We gave you our lives. That's what you mean to us. If you're a mother of a nursing child, you, that, that probably has a lot of life to you. You're giving of yourself to your child throughout your life. That's what he said. We gave of ourselves. We didn't just fire you an email. We opened our hearts. Look what he says in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, same chapter. Go down to verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we were like a father to you. 
not only were we gentle like a nursing mom, we're like a father, and we spoke truth to you and sort of charged you in a way, in a good way. We exhorted you and encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We're like a father and an older son calling a son to man up and trust the Lord. We did that too. So we sort of brought an exhortation, and we were gentle. We, we were like parents to you. Now, obviously, uh, if you are a parent, your love for your children is unique. You're not called to love uh, the person in your care group in exactly the same way you love your child. If Rob loves me like he loves his three sons, uh, that's like weird, wrong, inappropriate. That's not what we're shooting for. He should be loving, and he does, his three sons in a different way that he loves me. But there's something, something in that that is reflective in the way that we relate together. There's a distinction between our relationship with children and our relationship with others. But I still think God wants us to be like Paul in this, that we are to know what it is, ha- what it is like to have our hearts tied to how someone else is doing in the Lord. Our hearts tied to them. See, what Paul's describing here It's to be our experience in some degree because what Paul is describing here is love. That's what Paul is talking about. He is talking about love. Now, Paul's role is different than ours. I believe his capacity is greater. I believe his relationships are broader. But the affection and concern for these brothers and sisters is, I believe, not primarily the language of an apostle, but the language of a Christian. His care, his affection, his desire that they do well, his love for them, I don't believe it's just apostolic. I believe it's the heart of a Christian. And here's why I say that. Look at how he prays in verses 11 and 12. Now may our God and Father himself, verse 11, and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Okay, he's praying. May God bring us to you. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. What does Paul say? He says, I want you to love one another just as we love you. How do you love us, Paul? See the paragraph ahead. How does Paul love them? He relates as a mother gently with them. He relates as a father exhorting them. He has a heart that is torn when he doesn't know how they are doing. He has a heart that is comforted in affliction when he hears that they are doing well. He has a heart that's filled with joy and praise and worship to God when he finds out that they are doing well. He has a heart where he is praying for them, where he is eager to see them. What does he want to do when he sees them? He wants to help them grow some more. His heart is that they mature in Christ. Their concerns are his concerns. And that's not just being an apostle. That's being a Christian because he says, the way we love you, I pray that you'll love one another in the same way. There may be some distinct roles. They may not do exactly all of the same things with regard to teaching scripture or leadership or some kind of things he does like that. He may have a shepherd's heart that is somewhat unique in, a, in that he has a capacity to care for a greater number of people. But just the raw concern for how goes it with your life, how are you doing in Jesus Christ, that's Christianity, not apostolic leadership. That's Christianity because he says, I pray that you'll love each other in the same way we do love you. Christian love 
is expressed in a weighty concern for others' relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, their progress, that's Paul's concern. That's love. That's the church. See, the church is to be a community of love where individuals say, my well-being is connected to the progress of others in the Lord. Not my ultimate well-being. It is well with my soul. I'm saved if everybody else is doing bad, okay? But there's a sense in which how I'm doing is tied to how you are doing. The spiritual progress of others is a primary concern for us, and that is real love. If they have a physical need, we want to meet that need. If they have a financial need, we want to help where we can. If they need food, we want to provide that. If they need a listening ear, we want to provide that. If they need some tangible help, we want to provide that. So obviously, love is expressed in a lot of different ways, but I think chief among the characteristics of love is to be concerned with how someone else is doing in their relationship with the Lord. I have a very good friend, and um, actually I'll be talking to him this week, and uh, he frequently will say this to me sometime in the conversation, early in the conversation. So, Craig, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? Now, Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means what's happening here. Can I care for you? How are you doing? In in your relationship with the Lord, in your life, what's going on? How how are you really doing internally? How are you doing in faith towards God? How are are you meeting the Lord? How are you sensing the Lord's strength? How are you doing? That's what he's saying. He's not just merely saying, how's work? Or how about them cowboys? How's your family? Those are all fair questions. But he's cutting through and he's saying, how goes it with your soul? That's what Paul says, when we heard that it went well with your soul, when we heard that your soul was inclined towards the Lord, when we heard you loved one another, whoa, we just overflowed with thanks towards God. That's a high vision, and I think that's the vision of church life. I think church is not primarily to be characterized by what programs do you offer, what facility do you meet in, is your worship style contemporary, traditional, Um, you know, what what kind of men's ministry, women's ministry, kids' ministry do you offer? Uh, These aren't the heart of what it means to be the church. The heart of what it means to be, they're all fine, everything I just said, but the heart of what it means to be the church is to be those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, have been joined together in the mission of glorifying him, serving and building up one another, and reaching the lost with the gospel. And at the heart of all of that is love. Because where the Spirit is, there will be love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And the kind of love that's characterized, not merely by a high five and, you know, slap on the back, just kind of a warm, friendly greeting, but the kind of love that's characterized with a burden for how one another are doing with God. That's love. That's love. Practically, to have that kind of community on a large scale is uh, difficult, really impossible. There's not enough hours in the day for you to connect with everybody in this room at that level. 
It's just not going to happen. That's impossible to happen. If a church grows beyond the size of a living room, then there has to be some attempt to structure community life at some level. You can't make community happen. Only God does that by the power of his spirit and people responding to the promptings of his spirit. But you have to structure it in some way. In a smaller church, it, it's, it tends to be easier to accomplish when people can know one another. What's a smaller church? I had an opportunity to spontaneously have dinner with a guy this week who, as far as I know, is, uh, was dinner with a group of guys, is probably the leading um, church I don't know, statistician, I might say. Just, he just knows about what's happening internationally and nationally with church life. And at the dinner, he made this statement. He said, the average church, statistically speaking, in the United States is 77 people. That's the average size church in our country. Well, in Dallas, I thought the average size church was 77,000. Well, no, you just know about those churches. But for every church you know about, uh, there's 100 churches, 1,000 churches around you that you don't know about that are much smaller. So if in an average-sized church with 77 people, it's, it's a little easier to know everybody. But if you're more than 77 people, then a church that's larger than the average-sized church in our country, it, it becomes more difficult. So there has to be some attempt at that. We can't all be equally connected. So we've structured our church around uh, groups. We call them small groups, care groups. They're really groups where community is ideally to take place, and it doesn't always um, because it's made up of humans on this side of heaven. Um, so it doesn't always happen gloriously, but we are seeking to lay out that vision afresh. And one of their primary purposes is to form, to, like, form communities within our community so that within these communities we can actually take an interest in the spiritual well-being of another person where we can really say, I can look at over here and say, I love you all, but I cannot know all the details of all of your lives and how you're really doing. But I could do that with a dozen people. So we're, we're trying to structure where we can say, hey, there's at least a structure. And I want to make this clear. Care group does not equal community. The Holy Spirit has to work. We have to be responding. He will work. We have to respond to him. But it's a structure, it's an environment where it can happen, and we're praying for it to happen in an increasing way. But in that environment, uh, in a smaller community, I can take an interest in the spiritual well-being. I can really say, not just theoretically, your growth in Christ matters to me, but I can say that practically and can demonstrate that as we're together in a number of different ways, sharing our lives. And then I can say, I am affected by how you are doing in the Lord. I can see that my, in my soul there's certain joys and certain sorrows that I'm, we're bearing burdens together. We're laughing with those who laugh. We're weeping with those who weep. We're experiencing life together where, in such a way, how you're doing with the Lord has an effect on me. I can say your burdens are mine, your joys are mine, and hopefully that works both ways, where my joys and my burdens are you, yours. I can say I care. I can say, as Paul does, I love you. That's really easy to say, but to demonstrate that is the heart that we see in this text. He's saying, I pray that your love will increase and that you'll love each other like we love you. And our love for you has a profound impact on our life. It's not a minor detail. It's not just like one small thing out here. I live because you're doing well in the Lord. Yes, it's an apostle speaking, but he's primarily a Christian speaking. 
And so that's why we structure a bit smaller so that we can have some shot at knowing others. For this to occur, God must do something. There must be a heart transformation. And that's why when Paul gets to this, he doesn't just say, you know what, I really love you guys. And so here is the seven-step plan. Here's what I do each day. Practical help, not opposed to that. But here's what I do each other, a day. So you do these seven things and you'll be like me. That is not what he says. What does he say? He says, he prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. He's just saying, because of this, I'm praying that you get the same vision I have for brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of this, I'm praying you get the same burden. You get the same heart. You get the same care so that that you have a heart to love one another, he says, and a love for all. That it's an increasing love for those within the community and an increasing love for those outside of the community. But starting inside the community, to be sure. We're not expressing love to those in the community. Our expression of love to those outside is going to be inauthentic, hypocritical, and confusing to them. So we need both, but we certainly start by making sure I'm loving my wife, my family, and you in all of this. So that, that's his heart. May the Lord make you increase. Now look at verse 6. Timothy has already reported. Timothy's come to us from you. He's brought us the good news of your faith and love. Timothy's already said the Thessalonians love. But what Paul is saying, I'm praying that your love may increase. Yes, you love each other, but I'm praying it increases. He's calling out to God to take them beyond where they are so that their concern for one another, their care for one another, their sacrifice for one another, their service for one another, their humility in relating to one another. And ultimately, he's praying that their hearts are so intertwined as a family, that what one experiences is experienced by others in the family. And for that to happen, the Spirit of God must do something. God must increase our love. Sin must be put to death, and God's life must be coming alive in us. Selfishness must be ever being slaughtered, and selflessness must be coming out of us. Others must become greater. We must become smaller. Jesus must ultimately become great in our eyes to change us in that way. He's praying that love would increase and it would abound. Do you see that? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Abound means like overflow. It's increasing, but then it's spilling over out of its container. It's abundant. It's flowing. It's abounding. It's not contained. Love is flowing out of them to one another, and ultimately, love is flowing out of them to others as well. He says that you may love others just as, love for all, just as we love you. So meeting physical needs, vital. Meeting emotional needs, where we can, vital. That's a tangible expression of love, but it's the state of the heart that matters most. And so what does he do? He says, he prays that their heart would be like his is. How do we practically apply this? Well, I would say we don't start globally because it's really easy to theoretically love everybody on the planet. God, just help me love everybody. Well, that's admirable, and it's entirely unrealistic because you don't know everybody and won't meet everybody. So we start, I think, very, very local. Start with our community. And if you're married, that starts with your family, your husband or wife. And if you have kids, it starts with them. So we start 
saying, Lord, would you give me your heart for those closest to me? If you're a husband, you're called, I'm called to love our wives as Christ loves the church. So that, that right there is enough to provoke us to prayer because we need God in that. So you start there in your marriage. Lord, can you help, would you help me to have this kind of care and concern? How is my wife really doing in her heart? How's my husband really doing with the Lord? That's my primary concern. How's my, how are my children doing? Lord, that, that is a primary concern. That's a, a, a privileged stewardship that you've entrusted to me as a parent. So we start there. I think, secondly, we branch out and start. If you're in another church, I don't know how your church is structured, but however it is structured, you find some way to find community there. So we send you back to your church and pray that God will increase your love for the people he's called you to be with, if that's where you're called to be. But if it's in this church, I'd say find a group to experience community with. That's where I would start. Find a tangible group of people. And it probably won't be a group of people that are all just like you, think the same like you, do the same like you. Every detail of your lives are in common. You meet one another and say, yes, me too. It's probably not going to be that way with everybody in the group. And and that's the way God designs it. He doesn't put you in a me too group. Put you in a group of people that are different so that we can grow and learn and experience community. You think Paul was like everybody in this church? I have such a heart for those of you who are just like me. It's not what he's saying. You've got a heart for all the people. So find a group. Just find a group. That's where it starts. You can't love nameless, faceless people that you don't know. So show up on Wednesday night in a living room. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Um, you could also find a place to serve. We're trying to do community in other places. That's kind of our bedrock, foundational starting place. But there's community in other places. There's community going on right now with people who are serving together in children's ministry or peop- the worship team that came and served early. So if you're in some kind of service group in the life of the church or some kind of other group, uh, REACH, where the college students meet, or G2, where the um, middle school and high school Young people and, and parents meet together. Those are other places where we can experience community, too. I'd say start with a small group, a care group, and then look there. And then secondly, after you get in a place for that to happen in the life of the church, I'd say pray this prayer. Pray Paul's prayer. This is a great prayer. Lord, may my heart increase. Lord, make me increase, verse 12, and abound in love for those you've placed me in relationship with and for all. That is, for those out, outside of my sort of circle of relationship as well. I would pray that. I'd pray that because it's a prayer that's in the Bible. And here's what's really cool. It's a prayer that's answered. This is, God will answer this prayer. He prays, may you increase in love. Look at the next book, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. The next book, this is written later to the same people. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. He prayed that in the last letter. He reports it's being answered. Hey, here's the good news. You're loving one another more, and this is glorious good news. So we're thanking God for that. 
God will answer that question. Oh, I just don't know if I can relate. I don't have a heart for them, and it's really hard. I'm going through my own stuff. Pray the prayer. Open yourself up to God. Say, Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now enable me to express that tangibly to some individuals that you've placed me in relationship with. Pray that prayer. And then here's something very simple. Very, very simple. You know the illustration I used earlier about my friend who says, so how is your soul? You don't have to use that language. Maybe if the people you know don't know what that means or what that could sound like bizarre buzzword, like what, what do you mean, you know? They may not know what that means, but however you can express it, just ask people how they're doing and offer to help, offer to pray, take an interest. That's really what it is. It's don't just wait for people to ask you questions. You just ask. Pray before your small group meeting tonight, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever you meet. Pray, Lord, give me an interest. Give me a heart. Give me a concern. Give me a burden. Lift my eyes to you and to them and away from myself. Help me to ask questions. Help me to take an interest. And help me, if I've never done it before, to take a step of faith and after the small group is over, to ask something besides just how's your job. That's a fine question. You don't know them. You know, it's your first time at the group. You may not just walk in your first meeting and say, tell me your darkest secret, man. You know, don't do that, okay? <laughs> okay, I'm not saying that, but can you ask something? Maybe this is really hard for you. Maybe you need to write down some questions. I'm serious. Maybe you need to write down, these are some things I need to take an Here's how I could take an interest in other people. You know, maybe there's someone in your group that's great that way. Hopefully your leader is. Why don't you just set up coffee, set up a meeting with them and say, hey, how could I bear the burdens of others? How could I express love of Christ? How can I take an interest in other people? Teach me. This is an area of discipleship, training, learning. Watch people. How do they do it? But then seek to take an interest. Make a phone call. Talk to someone in the lobby. Invite someone over for dinner or out for coffee with the goal of finding out how their relationship with the Lord is doing and secondly, how you might pray for them or how you might help them. And then write that down and carry that burden. Lord, help me pray for them. Check on them. How are they doing? Maybe it's one person. If everybody did that with one person and none of us like tripled up on people, by next week, we'd be different. But it's mostly a heart. It's not a technique. It's a heart. Pray for the people as Paul does here. So he finds out how they're doing, and he starts praying for them, that their love would increase, that God would work in their life, that they would be, verse 13, established. Their hearts would be established in holiness as the Lord returns. So the Lord would help them grow in holiness. So pray for people and, and daily consider the gospel. See, ultimately, the Bible doesn't teach us. The mes- message of the Bible is not love people like Paul loved them. The message of the Bible is love people as Jesus loves you. That's the message of the Bible. John 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Why does that person on the row next to you matter? Why does that person in your small group matter? Why does that fellow college student at REACH matter? Why does that person you're meeting with in the prayer meeting Friday morning matter? Because they matter to God to such a degree that Jesus Christ, God, became man and endured the cross for them, gave his life 
for them, absorbed the wrath of God which was aimed at them and rescued them from destruction just as he's done you. And now God is faithfully growing them, maturing them, and doing that through all the trials, all the burdens, all the difficulties of life, and he wants to use you in that process along with them. That's why it matters because of the gospel, because of what God is doing in their lives, because of what God wants to do in each of our lives through community, because God loved us so much that he laid down his life and is working in others' lives through us. And he's doing that in such a way that we would be radically transformed as a community of love so that when other people come in and observe our interactions or they come into our house when we're together with other believers or we're participating with them in some way with other believers, they're able to look and say, there's something different about these people. They're making sacrifices. They're loving. They're taking an interest. There's a genuine interest. It's not surface. It's heart. What matters most? Nothing matters more than your relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know what burden you feel today, but may that be chief. Nothing matters more than how are you and Christ doing today. And when that matters to me, and I take that perspective and interest in you, that's the love of the Spirit flowing out of me to you. And then when that flows out of our circle, our little community, our little communities within communities, and that spills out to the culture around us. That's the gospel going forth as it did in the book of Acts. People that are very messed up and very selfish and have all kinds of issues transformed by the grace and power of Jesus Christ to be different, to have our hearts reoriented, to have our interests reoriented, to have what matters reoriented to us. That's why it matters. May the Lord make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Because Christ loves us and has given his life for us. And if we're open and we're responsive, guaranteed God answers that prayer. Guaranteed, because it's his will to make us more like the Savior and make others matter to us as they matter to Him. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.